She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium Season 1. Episode 18. Lamentation. This episode was filmed in British Columbia, Canada and originally aired on Friday, April 18th, 1997. Between Walkabout and this episode, on April 4th was a repeat of episode 10, The Wild and the Innocent. And then the week after that, on April 11th, was a repeat of episode 11, Weeds. In this episode, shit gets real and you're going to need a new fan because it's going to hit it. Boom. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. shit hitting fan, get it. Anyway, this episode was written by Chris Carter and directed by Winrich Colby. Guards with guns precede a gurney that's flanked by nurses and doctors as it's rolled into the ER. The patient, Dr. Ephraim Fabricant, is cuffed to the gurney and staring blankly at the ceiling as he's wheeled into a surgical suite. He then tells the surgeon, Dr. Wilmore, that the surgeon is going to enjoy cutting into him. He can just tell. Wilmore tells him that the difference is he's going to wake up, unlike those women he cut up. And then Fabricant asks the nurse who's shaving the surgical site if she hates him. She tells him she's just doing her job. He looks around and says there are far too many people here with sharp objects who find him detestable. Wilmore assures him he's in good hands, and then the anesthesiologist puts the mask over his face to put him under. As the drugs take effect, he sees the women he killed standing around him, all of them with slit throats. Then we're in the security ward, and it's 10.54 p.m., So, obviously, it's later, and a guard is sitting outside Fabricant's room. A nurse approaches, and the guard lets her in, telling her that the patient should be under for another few hours, and he's cuffed to the bed, so she doesn't need to worry, but she can holler if she needs him. He closes the door and goes back to reading his magazine. Good use of, you know, his job there. Not going in. I mean, I guess he doesn't have to go in with her, but I don't know. just seems like maybe he could have... Then he hears noise in the room and he looks through the window. He sees the curtain has been drawn around the bed, which is kind of weird. So he opens the door and he calls for the nurse. He approaches the curtain and the nurse jumps out, beating him over the head with a fire extinguisher. Then the camera pans up and the bed is empty and we see the IV has been detached and there's blood stains on the bed. <sighs> and then we get the main titles. And then we get the epigraph. Every man before he dies shall see the devil, which is an English proverb from 1560. So, buckle in. This is a fun one, or at least it is for me. It's actually pretty straightforward on the surface, but the devil is in the details as always. So strap in. I wrote like two pages on this, so be prepared. Um, (laughs) Or skip ahead if you prefer. Anyway, so the best I can tell, this is actually a modernization from 1950 of a quotation attributed to the common people in a work written between 1560 and 1564 as collected in an 1844 book or not. So first hit 1976 PhD dissertation entitled the function of Proverbs in certain works by John Bunyan. That honestly is horribly written and seems to be really stretching to find references on Bunyan quotes, including quote, when the ungodly do die, their misery beginneth. 
For then appear the devils like so many lions waiting every moment till the soul depart from the body, end quote. I mean, the timing is off. The proverb is before they die. And Bunyan wrote, then appear the devils, meaning after they die. But importantly, that dissertation excessively referenced a dictionary of the proverbs in England in the 16th and 17th centuries, a collection of the proverbs found in English literature and the dictionaries of the period by William Palmer Tilly. 1950. That is one title. That is the title of the book. It is extremely long. Anyway, that appears on page 410, M105, because it's a giant book of quotations. And that quote is, every man before he dies, shall see the devil. Hmm. And Tilly's note reads, approximately 1564, BCON, pref, which means the Christian knight preface, I was able to figure out. And then cat, which means the Catechism of, which is the title of the book we're going to get to, page 624. And then it quotes what actually is in that book, which is the common people have a saying among them that every man before he dieth shall see the devil. So I went to that original source, which is the Catechism of Thomas Beacon, STP, chaplain to Archbishop Cranmere, prebendary of Canterbury, etc., with other pieces written by him in the reign of King Edward VI, edited by John Eyre in 1844. <laughs> Oof, these book titles. Yeah, but Beacon's own title for the work, so that's just the title of Eyre's edited edition. Beacon's own title for the work is A New Catechism Set Forth Dialogue-Wise in Familiar Talk Between the Father and the Son, made by Thomas Beacon. That's the whole title. And it contains a section entitled The Christian Knight. And the quote comes from Beacon's own preface to the work. So that explains all the notes that Tilly had in there, Christian Knight preface. So the quote in there is, the common people have a saying among them that every man before he dieth shall see the devil. Again, matches. But it seems he modernized it, right? Because he kind of made it say dies instead of dieth. However, the preface is entitled as a wish for the continued good health and prosperity of one Sir Francis Russell, Knight, Lord Russell, who died in 1555. So neither 1564 nor 1560 works without being super awkward, saying like, oh, I hope you live for a long time and you already died when I wrote this. Anyway, so trying to lock down the date of when this quote came out because I'm, I'm obsessive. I can't help it. And I found an 1843 book, which is an American reprint of a London edition, which is volume 10 of a 12 volume work on British reformers. So I look for, and I find the original London version as well as the American version. The London version was published in 1830, volume 10, writings of the Reverend Thomas Beacon, chaplain to Archbishop Kramer and Prebendary of Canterbury, because it also contains the Christian knight and on page 244 or 241 in the American edition, I read the common people have a saying among them that every man before he dies shall see the devil. So this one says dies, not dieth. So since both 1830 and 1844 books are British, but with different editors, the difference is a mystery. And I'm not sure why someone wanted to use dieth and someone wanted to use dies. Hmm. The Christian night is not dated, but the other work is that's around it. And it's placed betwixt two works dated 1950, which would fit the Lord Russell name checking that we had because Lord Russell died in 1955. But it would kill off the 1560 attribution unless somewhere along the line, the 50 was mistaken for a 60 and it's just a big typo. Hmm. And if that was the case, I don't know where Tilly got his 1564 from, although Ayers 1844 edition is listed as containing works from 1560 to 1564. 
So that could be where it came from. I don't know. Anyway, the John Bunyan quote that actually started all this, it doesn't help because it was written like in 1658. But that quote is from a few sighs from hell or the groans of the damn soul, in case you're wondering. Anyway, long story short, 1560 can't be right, though it seems to be the common attribution, although it's never attributed to Beacon in the quotation mills that you find on the Internet. And the fact probably comes from earlier anyway. Because if it was a common saying and not just something he made up, it would have had to have existed before he wrote it. So I know you don't care, and I don't <laughs> care that you don't care. No, it's actually really interesting. It's kind of funny how these things get like bandied about as like this was a common saying, and it probably was. But then like it's attributed to this person who made you know, and this work, and then you find it. And now I don't know. It's just fascinating how that stuff has moved through the centuries. Also, looking at reproductions of all these old books is fucking amazing i have to say oh i bet um the the john bunyan one is nuts because like it's just you'll have to it, you have to see i think it's, i think i put a I'll, if i haven't already put a link to go into the show notes i will find the link for the john bunyan thing and put in the show notes from like the original like pamphlet that he wrote it's nuts anyway also it is a recurring lyric which occurs three times in light years from home by primal fear in 2002 so, obviously didn't come from that because this episode is before 2002 but yeah that's all i'm done okay <laughs> Hopefully you've skipped ahead far enough, and now it's time for Tori to talk. Yay! <laughs> I don't know why anyone would be excited about that, but I'm glad that they are, because I do it a lot. Oh, people love you. They love you, Tori. I know you don't read the comments uh-huh. and the reviews, but you get called Sweet Tori. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, so people love you. And I, I'm putting my hands under my chin and trying to look cute and batting my eyes. <laughs> thank you very much. Can't see that, but, you know. So then we're in Mount Baker in the North Cascades in Washington. And we see Frank and Bletcher are snowshoeing up a path in the mountains and they reach this flat expanse. And Bletcher is like, what did I tell you, huh? And obviously the view is beautiful. It's gorgeous up there. And Bletcher says his dad used to take him here and he comes once or twice a year. So they both enjoy the view and hang out for a bit. And then Frank's pager beeps and he sighs. Bletch is like, is it important? And Frank says, it is. And he turns to head down the mountain. Yeah. So two things. One, I was like, that's some amazing reception up on top of that mountain that you got. I'm like, I wonder who the Millennium Group uses for a carrier. But it's probably like some covert satellite or something. It's probably Ooh, like yeah, carrier. yeah. Yeah. Especially in 2002 or whatever, whenever this was, early 2000. Well, this would have been nice. 90s. <laughs> I'm going to say this is 97, Tori. Weren't you listening to my opening? <laughs> You got, you got sidetracked by the primal fear 2002. Oh, you know, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, no, obviously late 90s. I didn't even have a cell phone until like the early 2000s. So well, I don't I mean, know. It's Frank's pager, but yeah, basically. Still got to be a Still. connection somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Also, very strong paternal vibe here. Like Bletch is like, you know, my dad brought me here and now I'm sharing it. But they kind of flip it because Bletch like remains the child because it's like when Frank has to leave, it's like he like has that disappointment, like, oh, you know, dad's got to go to work. Fun's over, mm-hmm. you know, kind of thing. It's really subtle, but without saying too much, like where this episode is going to go, it definitely seems intentional that it was kind of yeah. played that way. So then we're at the FBI training academy in Quantico, Virginia. Frank opens the door to the behavioral sciences unit. And there are a lot of agents around a U-shaped table. Agent Babbage introduces Frank to the group, saying they're probably familiar with his work, including his profile of Dr. Ephraim Fabricant. 
Frank's like, how did he escape? He's down to business. You know how Frank is. Babbage tells him that he was removed from prison to donate a kidney to his sister, which was removed. He was five hours post-op when he disappeared, but the anesthetic should have lasted eight hours. At least four doctors say there's no way he could have walked out of the hospital, let alone bash in a federal marshal's skull. Frank asked if the marshal survived, and we learned that he is touch and go. Another agent asked Frank what he thinks Fabricant wants. Freedom? Frank says freedom to him is only freedom to kill. Another agent points out his operation would have left him diminished, and Babbage says apparently not given what he did to the marshal. But Frank says he wouldn't have left the marshal alive. So, probably wasn't him. And then some are like, well, would he really have stopped to check? <laughs> Which I guess is a good question, but I don't know. Um, sounds like Frank is pretty convinced that he would have. So Frank explains the fabricant killed cats as a boy and then as a medical resident would respond to no code patients just to see how they died. The medical profession had one interest for him, the opportunity to rend death from life. Eventually, his appetite for death became overwhelming, ending in the murder and torture of five nurses in Cedar Falls. It's been six years since his last kill. He wouldn't have wasted the opportunity. Mm. So one of the agents concludes that Frank is saying someone must have helped him escape. Frank says he never should have been let out of his cell, but another points out that it's too late to lament what could have been. Frank says that he's there to catch him again, just like he caught him before. Ooh. That they got like all like the like the junior agents in that room or something. It's like Yeah, I know. He's kind of playing teacher <laughs> to them. He's like, let me explain to you how this works. It's kind of funny. Yeah. And if Agent Babbage looks familiar, that is because he is played by Michael David Sims, who played senior FBI agent in the X-Files episodes Ascension, Anasazi, The Blessing Way. Avatar and Heron Volk. So uh-huh. but kind of good casting. Cause you know, gives that nice gives that nice blend that we're gonna reinforce a little bit more here in just a minute. Oh yep, here we go. Yeah. So as he's walking to the stairs at Quantico, we hear Peter call Frank's name. Frank asks what he's doing there. Peter says he knew Frank would get the call on this, and he's anticipated what this might do to him. But Frank insists that he's fine. Peter realizes they probably laid into him a little about how Frank advocated to spare Fabricant from the death penalty. But Peter assures him it was the right call, and they've learned a lot from studying him. Frank asks if it was worth one life. Peter says he doesn't want either of them to have to answer that. That's why he's here. (gasps) So in this scene, as they're talking, there are these two agents who kind of come from the other direction And they go down the stairs and they look like Mulder and Scully, like, you know, red haired woman in a suit and, you know, guy who looks like Mulder. Floppy hair. Yeah, floppy hair. I love Mulder's floppy hair. I'm a floppy hair fan. (laughs) According to IMDb, it's not clear if this is actually Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny, but I feel like if it had actually been them, we would know. It would be in some, you know, X-Files trivia book or it would be mentioned on the internet. People would be aware. It's definitely not David Duchovny because you get enough of his kind of face to see like the (laughs) structure with the woman, her head's down a lot. Yeah, you can't really see. And they are kind of in the background. They're not like, it's you know. It's probably their stand-ins or something. I mean, it's probably, It might you know, be, yeah. yeah. But so. either way, you know, 
<laughs> it's definitely meant to look like them so that we think, mm-hmm. oh, they're at the FBI. There's Mulder and Scully, you know, which is yeah. funny that they didn't just get them to do like a walk on. But I guess because it is such a minor role where they're not even like stopping as they walk. I don't know. I just think it's funny. But the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, is that? And I like was pausing it. I was trying to track, you know. <laughs> Yeah, the the woman could be her, but I, I if it was, I think that would also would have been David Duchovny, and that's definitely not David Duchovny. Yeah, I mean, so. I'm pretty sure if it had been them, it would be all over the internet. You would know, like, oh, did you know that they appeared? Yeah, in this or episode? it'd be like it would like there's a person in this episode who is not credited, but then if you look on the internet, it says uncredited and tells you, and so like it would tell you if that was really David Duchovny mm-hmm. and Jillian Anderson. Yeah. So yeah, the internet would not let that go. No, it would not. It would be very well known. So, yeah. Yeah. Although this does mean that it was the FBI who paged Frank, not the Millennium Group. So mm. it's probably like a Black Knight satellite that they use. Mm. Alien technology. Since we know the FBI is hooked up with the aliens. Yeah, so. that's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Fabricant wakes up and he's hooked up to monitors in some unknown room. And the woman who had pretended to be a nurse walks into the room. We don't see her face, but she sits next to him and she fills a syringe with something. And Fabricant notes that she has him on dialysis and asks if he's in renal failure. And she doesn't answer. And then she ejects him with a syringe. And he's like, take good care of me, sweetness. I've got a whole lot of life left in me. So, <laughs> so I'm guessing he knows her or he's just creepy. I think probably both. <laughs> um, both but, yeah. 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 <laughs> So then we see Frankie enters the hospital room of Fabricant's sister, Sandra, and asks how she's feeling. And she says, very sore. And then she's like, are you Frank Black? And he's like, yes, I'm here about your brother. And she asks if it's true that he escaped and put a man in a coma. And he confirms it. And she's like, oh, God. you know. Yeah. And then Frank asks if he ever talked to her about an escape plan. And she says all he ever said was that he wanted her to live and to have the transplant even more than she did. So she probably has some guilt about the fact that, like, getting a yeah. kidney led to him escaping. Probably wasn't a big fan of her brother, I'm guessing, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Um, then Peter knocks on the door, and Frank goes out into the hall, and Peter tells him that Fabricant had a pen pal in prison, a woman friend. Apparently, they exchanged vows on the internet, and Peter <laughs> has an address. So. <gasps> okay, it's a lead. Yeah, so we go to Fredericksburg, Virginia, which isn't that far away from FBI headquarters. So that's cool. Frank and Peter approach a house, and someone watches through the window. They knock, and the woman answers. And Peter is like, Lucy Butler? And she confirms that she is. And Peter introduces himself and Frank. And she asks if Frank is the guy that Ephraim is always talking about. And Frank is like, I would assume. And then she lets them in. So Peter asks if they caught her working because her computer is on and she's got one of those clunky old big old giant mm-hmm. laptops, like the laptop Scully had in like the first season of X-Files, big old yeah. chunky looking one. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I was in a chat room. I spent a lot of time there. She's also got a spooky candle next to the computer, by the way, and it's all dark <laughs> in her house. So she tells them that she told the police that she was home the night Ephraim escaped and Frank warns her that she's in danger, but she insists that he doesn't want to hurt anyone. Frank tells her whatever their relationship is, he is single-minded and unrepentant of what he did. And Lucy says, you don't speak well of him, but he speaks so highly of you. And then Frank tells her that Dr. Fabricant is only alive because they had hoped that studying him would help them catch other remorseless human predators. So she says that she knows what he did and what he's capable of. 
the soul expresses itself, especially when there's a comprehension of extremes. And Ephraim had told her that Frank shares that ability. Frank says he should be in jail. And Lucy's like, he gave life to his sister, didn't he? Isn't that an act of redemption? And Peter points out he uses an opportunity to escape. And Frank asks what Lucy thinks he wants. And she says the only other act of redemption he's capable of. And Frank realizes that he wants to have a child. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I will say that Frank has a lot of guilt about like, oh, we let this guy live and now he's free and he might hurt other people, which is fair. I mean, I, I obviously have talked about before. I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't think that's a decision that should be made by the government or other people. I don't think taking a human life should be up for a jury debate. But anyway, what's not taken into account here like lucy does make the point like you know if he had been killed by the death penalty 10 years ago he wouldn't have been alive to donate a kidney to his sister that's now giving her a new lease on life so like i don't know i just feel like there's that argument to be made and i feel like that kind of gets like lucy makes it here and then it's not really brought up again because it is all about frank's guilt and stuff but i do think that's an interesting point like you know there are arguments to be made on both sides of that yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think you should be out to kill people, but also, I don't know. I just, again, not not a fan of the death penalty. So, I mean, that doesn't mean that she wouldn't have got a kidney. It's just he would obviously be the best match, we assume. So, right, but I mean, the wait yeah. list, since I don't know, it just you know. Yeah. Anyway, so Lucy's computer dings, and she says it's an email alert, and goes to the computer, and then she tells them that she thinks they should look at it. The message reads. Thy mother is like a vine in thy blood planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. So Frank asks if she has a Bible, and she does, and Frank flips through it, and then he says, I need to use the phone. Mm. So clearly that meant something to Frank. Lucy Butler is played by Sarah Jane Redmond. She also appeared in X-Files Season 2, Episode 12, Aubrey, as Young Mom. And she will appear in one episode of season five, as well as the second movie, I Want to Believe. In addition, she's been on episodes of Fringe, Supernatural, Psych, iZombie, and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, among others. Yeah, she definitely has a witchy vibe here. And she'll be returning in Millennium. So Frank picks up a phone and dials. As it rings, he tells Peter that it's Ezekiel 19, verse 10. Peter realizes that 1910 Ezekiel is Frank's home address, which to be fair, that is incredibly freaky. So yeah, I get why Frank is in panic now. Catherine picks up the phone and Frank asks where Jordan is. And Catherine's like, she's she's right here. And so she knows he's worried. So she asks what's wrong. And he's like, did you pick up the mail this morning? Did anything come to me addressed in a plain envelope? And she's like, in fact, something did. She asks if he wants her to open it. He hesitates, but then he says, yes, away from Jordan. So she steps away and tears it open. And he asks what it is. She says it's Polaroids of an Asian man in judge's robes. Frank hangs up and tells Peter that Judge Park is dead. Dun-dun! It's commercial. Mm-hmm. 
So surprisingly, the Ezekiel 1910 quote is straight up King James Version. The only difference is on the screen, there's a period that separates the two parts, whereas in the King James Version, it is a colon. But mm. he went straight up and just used a full-on quote. Didn't yep. mix it up or nothing. So come back from commercial, and it's 5.16 a.m. And a coroner removes the sheet from Judge Park's body and moves him onto an examination table. He asks Frank if he knew him. And Frank says he was a judge and a good man who didn't deserve this. And the coroner starts giving off the stats about Park and his recorder, including that the medical records indicate he was in good health. He knows that there's no sign of trauma and no clear cause of death in the preliminary exam. So as the coroner starts to cut into the body, Frank steps away and Peter asks if there's a cause of death. Frank shakes his head and he's like, you think it's fabricant? And Frank says, you know, it is. And Peter points out that this took planning and he had to have help. And Frank went through all of Fabricant's correspondence. So unless there's some code in use, there's no evidence of any kind of plot. So I can't figure out how this is going on. Right. So Peter asks if he thinks it's Lucy. And Frank says they wrote some of the most beautiful love letters you'll ever read. And Peter says they say genius is the ability to hold two contradictory thoughts in your mind at the same time. What do you call a man who can hold two distinct personalities? Frank says, the devil. <laughs> it's not funny, but it kind of is. I don't know why, just because it's it's so dramatic. But I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just a little over the top. Peter asks if they would have possibly known the effect the Polaroids would have on him. And Frank says he doesn't know, but he's not giving him the chance to do anything. And Peter's like, you can't go home. You're the only one who knows how to catch him. So Frank was like, dude, I'm going back because they're in Virginia and Frank lives in Seattle. So. Mm -hmm. so Peter hands Frank an envelope and inside are the photos of the way that Park's body was found. Frank looks at the photos and then looks immediately at Peter. And Peter's mm -hmm. like, man, you got it right away. It took me 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So later, the photo of the judge's body is on the projector on the screen. And Frank explains that the body was posed by the killer with the arms arranged to mimic the arms of a clock at 217. I had a little trouble with this because I guess if you use the head as the 12, that works. But like, depending on which way the photograph was taken, those arms would be in different positions. Anyway, mm -hmm. also 217 is extremely accurate for arms to be placed, I have to say. I know, and I know, because you, <laughs> you feel like the most you could get is maybe like the 15. You Quarter hours, there, maybe, maybe, like, maybe like maybe like seven and eight, right? Because you just cut the quarters in half. But beyond that, it's like 40 and yeah. Yeah, but, 217, whew, that's pretty good. Anyway, that time was the time also on the victim's watch and on the clock. So like both his watch and his clock were stopped. So I guess maybe that helps say 217. Right, yeah. But the time does not correspond to the estimated time of death. Hmm. They believe it's referring to a biblical passage, Judges 2.17, which Peter then reads, And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. So, and just a little quick note here, obviously, that's only the first half of Judges 2.17. The full verse continues with, they turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not do so. Which makes sense. They would drop this part because it doesn't really make sense for the episode. Anyway, but another mm -hmm. straight up King James Version translation, which I'm glad they're doing that. And they're not just jumping around different translations. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, 
One of the agents asks what that means, and Frank says they think it's referring to the behavioral science unit with the arrogance of trying to learn the nature of evil. So he's saying that they are the ones who went to Horan. So mm -hmm. they mention it's the second biblical reference sent to taunt Frank. And then Frank explains that the killer is saying that evil begets itself. And Fabricant told the woman that he married in prison that he wants to have a child. And an agent jokes that they removed the wrong organ. So, uh -huh. oh, oh, he's a comedian. Yeah, yeah, we need to hire more people like that in the FBI. That's why you're on the junior team, bud. Step up. <laughs> anyway, Frank continues that Park's cause of death was cyanide poisoning. The killer had to have access to his chamber as the poison was in his tea, and they need time to stage the body. So it couldn't have been Fabricant. Babich asks who he's working with, and there's no answer. <gasps> and then we see Fabricant, and he's still hooked up to his machines, and he's like, oh, uh, and he's like totally wincing in horrible pain. And then we see why, because the woman is sitting there and is pulling metal staples out from his still unhealed incision. So, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe not a good idea. Like if your wound is like open and bleeding, maybe don't take the staples out. You should maybe leave those in a while. But yeah, know. I mean, it hasn't been that long, so I don't know. It seemed like it's a good time to remove those, but I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it's 10 a.m. Peter, Frank, and a bunch of agents are on Lucy's doorstep. They have a warrant to search her house. So she asks what they're searching for. Frank tells her evidence of her connection to a murder and Fabricant's escape. She lets them in so she doesn't have a choice because they tell her that she'll be arrested and let her know that the marshal woke up from his coma and gave a description of his attacker. She asks if it was a woman. Frank tells her that some things have come to light about her past. She worked as a traveling nurse, and she had a son. She says, yes, he died four years ago. Peter says that she was tried for his murder, but she insists that she was found innocent. Frank says, but he died of cyanide poisoning, the same way the judge who tried Dr. Fabricant did. And then she gets mad that they're not calling Fabricant her husband, and Peter's like, well, he's legally not. And she snaps that legally, she's not guilty. So seems a, like a delightful person. But to be fair, I mean, I don't. I mean, she's right. And yeah. they did kind of fabricate stuff to get a warrant, which is bad, which she is inferring. Yes. But also she's creepy as fuck. She is very creepy. And very smug. She is very smug and creepy. Possibly killed her son. That's not clear. It seems like probably she did. But uh, yeah, kind of fucked up. But I mean, again, I don't see why it would kill them to call him. Her husband i don't know it doesn't matter that much you know i mean i don't know that like just giving vows over the internet counts as marriage but you no know, whatever i mean it doesn't but like what is marriage anyway right like it's this construct anyway we can argue it's a legal already. contract it is a legal contract so anyway lucy knows that he's lying about the marshal giving a description and she starts to imply that they got the warrant illegally by lying. But Peter interrupts her, saying Fabricant was removed from the hospital post-op under dangerous conditions. Wouldn't she like to help find him? Because obviously he could be in trouble. He's he still be healing suffering. from a major surgery, right? Yeah. Like, also, someone kidnapped her husband, possibly. Yeah. So. But instead, she threatens to sue for entrapment and invasion of privacy. So clearly not on board with helping. Later, we see them in a hospital room with the marshal who is still in a coma. <gasps> they did lie. Yes, they did. Dr. Wilmore tells him his chances of recovery aren't great, but it's still kind of unpredictable. He asks if they found Fabricant, 
as he might be dead or near dead without proper medical care. And then the phone rings and it's for Frank. <gasps> it's Catherine. And he's like, what's wrong? And she says a woman called and told her that Frank had been trying to call her and that he was at the hospital. And Frank is kind of confused. <laughs> and Catherine says, she said, you found the man you were looking for. And then a nurse runs up and says, they have to see this. And so they all run down the hall and Fabricant is on the floor of the hospital and he's just laying there in the hallway and there's blood covering his gown and he appears unconscious and they get him up on a gurney and Wilmore says they need to get dialysis set up immediately. Someone removed his other kidney. <gasps> That's not good. Mm -hmm. And then Catherine is at home in the yellow house when the power goes out. And there's lightning, chow, chow. So it's all like, you know, flashing, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then she takes a tea kettle off the stove because they still they have a gas stove. So that part's still working. So that's cool. That is nice about gas because, like, if the uh -huh. power goes out, gas still works. Yeah, my um, mom has a gas stove and she lives in an area where the power goes out in the winter sometimes because of snow because they get like feet of it mm -hmm. and it just drops the lines. And so, like, they can still use the stove and they have a fireplace and stuff. So that's always nice. Yeah. When I was young and stupid, I got my electricity turned off because I didn't pay the bill because I was drinking too much. But I still had gas, and so I could use that to stay warm, which you shouldn't do because you shouldn't turn your stove on for heat. But, you know, mm -hmm. do what you can when you're dumb. Anyway, she takes the kettle off the stove and then notices that the fridge door is open, and there's a light coming out of the fridge. And my first thought is like, D come on, guys. You just said her power's out. How can there be a light coming out of the right? fridge? The power's I know. Out. But she opens the fridge, and inside... There's a kidney sitting on a plate with a flashlight illuminating it. <gasps> Gross. And it's a commercial. Gross and creepy. So whoever did that did that on purpose because they knew it would illuminate and stand out in the blackness. So mm -hmm. also, Incredibly creepy. they didn't mess up. So yay. That was my first <laughs> thought, though, when she saw that. I was like, oh, come on, guys. You're like, we come just on. saw the power go out. <laughs> Okay, they're not always that bad. They have someone no. on the set who's watching for some things, I'm sure. Something, yeah. So we come back from a commercial and Catherine hears Jordan call out for her. So she runs for the stairs. But at the top of the stairs, there's a figure with long hair standing at the top. It's a man, not Lucy though. So Catherine runs down to Frank's office to get his gun out of the filing cabinet, but it's not in the holster. And so she picks up the phone and it's all doo -doo 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 -doo, dead. And then she picks up another phone. I think he has two lines down there, I guess, because she picks up another phone and that one is also doo -doo 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 -doo. So not really dead. I guess that's like, off, I don't know what that sound is. But anyway, the phone ain't working. Anyway, at the hospital, Fabricant is wheeled into surgery. And when Wilmore comes out, he tells Frank and Peter that whoever removed his remaining kidney did so without anesthetic, truly sadistic. Unless they put him under hypnosis. <gasps> <laughs> Maybe oh they hypnotized God. him. Your kidney feels very cold. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> However, it was someone who knew what they were doing. A second-year med student could do it, which I get. To me, those are contradictory statements. And then he's like, in fact, you could probably find the instructions on the internet. So it sounds like maybe, I guess, if you found the instructions on the internet, you would know what you were doing. But saying, like, it was someone who knew what they were doing and basically saying, like, anyone could do it if they had the internet, that those seem contradictory to me. Anyway. Yeah. And then Frank is like, a nurse? And he's like, if they spend any time in an OR, sure. Also, it was someone who knew the hospital. Because he hands him the bracelet the Fabricant was wearing when they found him. And the name is A. Nefric, which is a pun, I guess, because mm -hmm. that 
the word anephric means someone without kidneys. And so it's a fake bracelet, but it's got like all the correct information. It has Dr. Wilmer's name and everything on it. And he hands it to Frank. Frank runs to a payphone and he tries to make a collect call to Catherine because the bracelet has his phone number on it. <gasps> oh, no. But the operator tells him the number can't be reached. Uh-oh. Probably it was all do 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 Yeah, phones are offline. Yeah. So Catherine makes her way up the stairs, calling for Jordan. She's not in her bed, so Catherine frantically looks around, runs through the house, as you do when you're panicked and looking for your kid, I imagine, in a scary situation. I've done the same thing with my cats before, so I understand on some level. <laughs> Well, <laughs> she saw panic. a strange man at the top of the stairs. Right, so she wants to make so. sure that her kid is okay. Yeah, I've never seen a strange person in my house, but you know, when like you can't find your anyway, can't find your cat or your kid. I'm sure either way, it's you know panic inducing. What if the kid got out and is in the street now? You never know. Or in this case, you know, was taken by an evil killer who's in their house. Anyway, so as she's running, she runs into Bletch and she screams, but then she realizes who it is. So she's like, okay, you know. And Bletcher tells her that they have Jordan outside. So outside, Catherine finds Jordan with Giebel House. Catherine says someone was inside. It was a man. Bletch tells Frank that someone cut power to their house and he's going to have a look around. But Frank tries to stop him, but Bletch insists that things are under control. Obviously, this is over the phone. If Frank were there, nothing would stop him from running inside the house himself. Yeah, so I'm assuming when he couldn't get a hold of Catherine, because we do see him pick up the phone again. Like, he slams the phone down, and the operator tells him, and then he picks it up again, and then we cut to Catherine. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming he called Bletch. Yeah, and told her that stuff was going wrong at their house, and so they rushed over. Yes, exactly. Bletch goes inside the house with his gun drawn, and then he sees the figure at the top of the stairs. He holds his gun on them as they walk down. But this time, it's not a man. It's Lucy. As lightning flashes, she appears as both the man Catherine saw and a winged demon. <gasps> this is some Donnie Faster shit, I gotta say. Like, this is, And this is also Chris Carter. So I think, like, when he was talking about that, like, Irresistible, the episode of The X-Files Irresistible, like, inspiring him... Like, this is clearly a direct inspiration from that, or at least related in his head to how these things work. Yeah. I do have to say, though, Demon Donnie Faster is a much better looking demon than this demon. Mm-hmm. This demon doesn't look great. So when it's a, when it's Lucy and a man, they're wearing the same clothes, which is kind of creepy. And the man has, like, hair, like, the same length as Lucy. So it's, like, just the face is different. That's kinda, and also that dude is, I'm sorry, actor who's this character, but. You're freaky looking, very freaky looking. (laughs) But the demon is like naked and like all pink. And it looks like a Hieronymus Botch demon or Mm -hmm. something. It's all very weird looking. It's not like, like, it's not like, I mean, obviously it's demonic looking demon. It's got wings. It's totally naked. But it's not like when you think of like a demonic demon, it doesn't look like that. It looks a little goofy. So. Yeah. Yeah. And also it's not good makeup. So it looks like a big rubber suit. That's what it looks like. (laughs) I don't think you're supposed to look at it very long. You're supposed to be like, oh, my God. And then, you know. Oh, my God, a demon. Giebel House gets Jordan and Catherine into the squad car and calls for backup. But then he goes inside. He calls for Bletch and looks around. We see other officers arrive and they head in as well. And Giebel House opens a closed door and Benny runs out and scares him. So thank goodness Benny's okay. Benny's their dog, if you didn't know. At the hospital, someone calls Frank and just breathes. And he asks who's on the line and, you know, no response. So that's fun. In the basement, 
Giebelhouse finds the phone off the hook and he hears Frank's voice calling for Bob. He picks it up. Frank asks where Bletcher is. Confused, Giebelhouse is like, didn't he call you? Then Giebelhouse drops the phone and says, oh my God. And we see Bob Bletcher is hanging from the ceiling, blood covering his torso with his throat slit. <gasps> oh, Commercial. Yeah, Giebelhouse is like, Mother of God, he's like, yeah, he's not. Mm -hmm. Rest in peace, Bletcher. And going back to our epigraph, you are indeed an everyman because mm -hmm. you saw the devil. So. I was actually very shocked that they killed off Bletcher at this point. So that was a surprise. Was not expecting that. Hmm. So then it is 8, 12 a.m. And at the public safety building in Seattle, Catherine and Jordan are alone in Bletcher's office. And Giebelhouse comes in and tells them they have a call. Gives her the phone, and it's Frank, and he asks how Jordan is, and Catherine is like, well, I didn't tell her anything, but she's a sensitive kid, and she knows she didn't sleep in her own bed last night, so obviously she knows something's going on. Like, we spent the night at the police station, basically, uh, probably in a hotel, probably not yeah. in the office, but anyway. Catherine also tells them that she's going to need some time. She cannot go back into that house just yet. And Frank is like, I understand. And then Peter comes in the room and tells Frank that he got him a flight. And that Fabricant has asked to see him. So Frank goes to see Fabricant in the hospital. And Fabricant tells him that all his mercy and good intentions were for nothing. He's dying and not of old age as he'd hoped. And Frank is like, where's Lucy Butler? And Fabricant grabs him and starts rambling on about the nature of evil and how it knows Frank. And like they go back and forth a lot. And then Frank is like, demands to know who it was in his house and who killed his friend. And Fabricant says, everything you hold sacred. And then Peter pulls Frank away because like they're they're really like going at it. And obviously Fabricant's in the hospital and about to die. And then as Frank and Peter leave, Fabricant is like, run, run. So Fabricant apparently seems to be kind of scared about what's going on. So. Yeah, he's a little freaked out. I mean, to be fair, someone pulled out his second kidney and now he's dying of organ failure, probably, because mm -hmm. sometimes yeah. when your liver or kidneys fail, the other one fails for fun. It's just like, you know what? If they're out, I'm out. I mean, you obviously can't survive without kidneys for very long without dialysis or even with dialysis. But yeah. Well, and he's not going to be high on the list for a transplant. No, he's definitely not. So, yeah, he's yeah. probably... Yeah, and like I said, you can't survive that long. Can for a while, but it's not going to keep you alive forever. Also, one of the reasons why they know he didn't get anesthesia, aside from it not being in his system, is that he was in like apparently like in super deep shock when they found him. Right, so, and that kind of thing yeah. can fuck up your system. Yeah. So someone yeah. really fucked him up. So that's that's mm -hmm. fine. So Frank back in Seattle talks to Giebelhouse. They have three sets of prints they can't identify, and the murder weapon was something the killer brought with them. From the wounds, they believe it was a hunting-style knife. He hands Frank the file. And then Giebelhouse has to excuse himself, because obviously this is his dead colleague and friend, so he is upset. Frank looks at the photos of Bletch's body. And Giebelhouse comes back and asks, Lucy Butler, that the name? Frank confirms that it is. He tells him they just arrested her on an outstanding traffic violation, and Frank is surprised. And he's like, here in Seattle? And Giebelhouse is like, yeah. So that's a little mm -hmm. weird that she's there. Yeah, because we were in Virginia before. Right. So that's, I mean, and we already knew she was in the house because we saw her, but like that's a long freaking trip too. So mm -hmm. 
Also suspicious. Frank goes into an interrogation room where Lucy is being held. He accuses her of being in his house. She acts innocent, but he says they have her fingerprints. She tells him he'll be disappointed. She's not the person he thinks she is. He asks who she is, and she says that she's the widow of Dr. Ephraim Fabricant. Someone comes in the room and whispers to Giebelhaus, who pulls Frank out of the room and tells him there's no match to Lucy from the prince in the house. She paid the traffic fines, so they have nothing to hold her on. Unless there's something else? And Frank says, no, there won't be. Giebelhaus asks what they want them to tell her, and Frank says, there's nothing she doesn't already know. Master criminal, Lucy Butler. <laughs> dun, dun. Yeah. Or perhaps demon from hell. Don't yeah. know. Hard to say. So back at the yellow house, Frank and Catherine are standing in their bedroom. And he says that she's angry with him. And she's like, it's not anger. She doesn't know what it is. And then she says they were kidding themselves, thinking they could come here and escape anything. And Frank is like, that's not true. And she's like, it is true. You can't make what happened in this house just go away. Frank tells her that he loves her more than anything in the world, and he doesn't know what to do. He literally doesn't know what to do. He's, like, struggling because it's, like, mm -hmm. trying to build this world for us to be safe in. And it's not working. So she says that she loves him, but that's not what it's about. It's about things that happen to them that don't happen to other people. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then we see Frank is carrying Jordan on his back. And climbing up the same snowy ridge that Bletch took him to in the beginning. And they sit down and he has Jordan look at the view. And then it's over. Yep. Bletch is dead. He is dead. This is technically a two-parter, although it's not really. I mean, this episode kind of ends and then the next one begins. And they're related because Bletch has been killed. But officially, this is considered a two-parter, the first of a two-parter. But not oh. really. It's kind of weird. So, so I actually haven't watched the next one yet. Do they continue? So they don't continue the story of like who Lucy is or what's going on. They there? do, but okay. it's not like a like if you know, like if you just came in. I mean, yeah, you wouldn't know Bletch was dead, but it's not like it's just like a continuing story. It's not. It's not like a like when you think two-parter, it's like cliffhanger, right? Yeah. Like, uh, oh my God, the train in the ground blew up and Mulder oh no and then it's just like he's fine and you know that kind of thing <laughs> and he's gonna fly in the sky with leaves all over him Mulder in the sky with leaves on <laughs> so it's not that kind of two-parter it's just like yeah I don't know why it's officially a two-parter because it's just a continuing story so, yeah which well I mean that works because I was gonna say like I'm I left this episode feeling really like I didn't know what had happened completely like you know a lot of times with these we at least have some idea of like what was going on, what the killer's motivation was, who did what, why. And this one, I feel like you're just left with like a ton of questions. Like what is happening? So like, why did they kill Bletcher? What was the point? Are they obviously they're out to get Frank, but then they're obviously not fans of Fabricant either. Or I don't know. It's, it's confusing. Well, I will say that in part two, you might not get the answers you want. I'll just oh. leave it at that. So oh, another reason why I'm not sure it's a two-porter. That's so. disappointing because that's what I'd want to know. Like, what's going on here? But Yeah. They also do that thing that X-Files just barely stopped doing where someone else wrote the second part 
and someone oh. else directed the second part. So yeah, so Chris Carter is not involved with writing. I mean, I, I don't know how much involvement he has as like. I'm sure he's involved a little but, bit, especially. But he's not the he's not the writer at all. There are two people who are writing the second episode, oh, and then wow. someone else is directing it. So yeah. So wild to me. It's so wild to me. But I guess if you, you know, and we know the X-Files didn't have like a writer's room type deal, but like, it still is funny to me that you would, <laughs> even in a writer's room situation, it feels weird that you would have two different people writing two different parts, but I guess it, that's how it happens. Yeah. Well, then even when they started doing that, they did the weird, I'm assuming it's probably like a money or residuals thing would be like Chris Carter and Frank Spotnitz. And then part two would be like Frank Spotnitz and Chris Carter. Like they got to flip it. So I'm not sure if that's ego or if that, I'm sure that's money, not just ego. Yeah. Stuff. I'm sure it's probably but, related to. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but yeah, this one totally no, at least on paper, no connection between part one and part two as far as writing and direction goes. Huh. So, yep. So what did you think of this episode, Tori? Because we oh, have to rate these. Oh man, I know. I mean, I think it's it's good in terms of like it's suspenseful. I'm curious to know what's going on. I want to know like who's helping fabricant who cut out his kidney why i mean obviously we it's a lucy right like yes but like why i just i don't get it like i don't get what her motivation is and what's going on in her head so i guess that's what really confuses me because bletcher is dead and i want to know what the purpose is because if you're trying to get revenge on frank for uh i mean if she's okay wait i think it just clicked a little because if she's a nurse, maybe she wanted to get revenge on Frank for allowing Fabricant to live. And then she set up a relationship with Fabricant to get close to him so that she could pull him out of the hospital. Like she didn't know that would happen, but, you know, when the opportunity arose, she got him out of the hospital and then was able to torture him by taking out his kidney and mm -hmm. then get back at Frank for allowing him to be alive after he killed those nurses who possibly she was friends with or knew, or at least felt sympathy for. Hmm. So maybe it all just clicked in my head. But what about the dude and the demon? I don't know. That's Chris. I still don't understand Donnie faster either. Okay. Chris Carter's weird. Chris Carter, you're a weirdo. I love you. You're a freaking weirdo. I'm going to start calling Donnie faster. I'm going to start calling him IDF for irresistible Donnie faster. <laughs> Let's call him IDF. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I don't know. This episode is is weird. I don't hate it. I don't love it. I don't love that Bletch is dead. But it wasn't bad. It wasn't like when I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, this sucks. Like I wanted to know what was gonna happen next. Every turn I was like, oh my God, like, whoa, that's Frank's address. Oh my god, Fabricant's in the hospital and his other kidney's been removed. Like the whole thing is, you know, in the whole scene where, you know. Catherine's running around the house like that part is terrifying because like I don't know the thought of being in your house without power and some stranger who's clearly out to get you like ooh, terrifying yeah. stuff and honestly when they find Bletcher's body too when Keeble House sees him like that was just kind of horrifying because like again I wasn't expecting it and I was just like holy shit like whoa so I guess I'm gonna give it a seven okay but seven. just because I, I still Ooh. i mean i think i made it all click in my brain but yeah i don't know i still have a few questions well i know whenever we do x files you're always super wishy-washy on two-parters yeah that's true so this may be one of those things i mean i kind of gave you some hints about what you're 
not going to possibly get next episode. But I mean, you don't know that officially. Well, right? yeah, and that's it, the so. thing is like usually with the Xbox two parters, I've seen both parts. So at that point, like I'm kind of judging it as a whole, whereas this one I haven't. So I'm literally judging it as part one. And that may be affecting my rating a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, short but sweet. Amazingly for me, I'm just going to, I used up all my <laughs> long windedness earlier in the episode, apparently. I was, I'm going to go with a seven also. I think it was a okay. good episode. Again, I'm not happy with the demon. I think they could have done a better job. They have done a better job with the demon. So I'm, I was a little disappointed in that, especially on an on a episode like this where like one of the, you could call Blutch a main character. He's a, he's a, he's an, yeah, a recurring, he's a recurring character, character for sure. Yeah. So we're, so we're one of those is killed off. I'm kind of like, I mean, not that they're distinctly related, but like you could have given him a better setting off than like that bad rubber suit. Come on. So, yeah. Anyway, the dude was creepy enough. I don't know what you needed the demon, honestly. Like, dude, <laughs> freaky. I'm sorry, dude. And he's, I, I cannot find out who this is because he, he's not credited in the episode and it's not one of those things like what we talked about. Like, like, like Fabricant's sister is the person who was uncredited. And then if you look on the internet, it says uncredited and gives you the person's name. But I don't know who played this dude who's in there. And I thought he would be in the next episode, but he's not. Huh. And I don't know that he's ever going to appear again. So I don't know who he is, but he's weird looking <laughs> and creepy. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, seven. Well, I guess most people are weird looking and creepy when they're standing at the top of the stairs in the dark. Yeah, but mm, yeah. Yeah. You saw this episode. No. He was weird and creepy looking. <laughs> Yeah, it was. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, my friend, whoever you are and wherever you are now. Yeah. So, all right, double sevens, ba boom. We'll be back with part two, which may or may not be a part two. I'm not sure that it really is. I think it's just, it's hard to say. I mean, like the episodes do, there is a continuing story, obviously, through the season. Um, it's just the next episode is directly related to the last episode because a major character died. But again, I don't know that it's really a two parter. So mm-hmm. in my head, two parters are always like cliffhanger, right? It's like a serial. Yeah, I don't so, think they have to be, but I think a lot of times they just are. So it's weird to have one where it's not. Yeah. So. All right. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And the truth is what we make of it by the agrarians which I, every time i listen to that that is i love that song i mean too it's so good like it just fits and it's so good so it is it's awesome go check out the agrarians maybe buy some of their merch i don't know yeah if you buy that we have a t-shirt on our stores that say buy the agrarians if you buy one of those i will send money to the agrarians for it like, I'm not going to keep it. Like, we don't get a lot for that kind of stuff, but, like, I will give them whatever comes through from by the agrarian <laughs> stuff. So. Nice. Because it's, I can't imagine our episodes without that song. I know sometimes I mix the music up and don't put it on there, but I did re- I really can't imagine it. And I need to stop talking because I'm not going to have enough music for this closing. So, <laughs> got to go. I Want to Rewatch is where we talk about the X-Files and X-Files adjacent television and films. If you like what we're doing, check out our show notes for ways to support the podcast. And of course, tell a friend. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time. And together we'll try to figure out if if the the truth truth is still still out there. there.
All right. All right. I couldn't stop talking. No, it's okay. It's uh, it's a rambly, crazy day. Like I think I don't know about you. My brain is fucking cream cheese. Like it I know, but I only have so much music. Whipped, whipped like cream cheese. Is cream cheese whipped? Not normally. Anyway. Um. Well, you can buy you can buy it whipped. You buy whipped but, cream cheese, which I do sometimes. Yeah.